The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Hey, uh, while you're turning there, Ephesians chapter 6, I have a couple of uh, announcements for you. Um, first of all, uh, right after service, it's just a short thing, no, nothing too in-depth, but right after service, we're having a newcomer's meet and greet for the pastoral staff. We, we often hear, yeah, I've been going here for about a year. I'm glad we got to finally meet. And I always feel guilty when that happens, but it's just sort of the nature of the beast these days. But um, what we want to do is take opportunities where we can just get a chance to meet you guys. So in the coffee shop right after service, um, the pastoral staff and guys will be in there so we would love just to be able to shake your hand and put some names to faces and meet you so if you have a chance please do that we need a bible down here guys whoever's doing that um, second of all, um, Women's ret- Spring Retreat, April 29th, um, that's a Friday through Sunday. Um, you're going to be, uh, the, the, I don't know, there's info back there. It's a, a, you're staying in a place, it's somewhere outside of Grants Pass, right? Is that right? Staying in a retreat center outside of Grants Pass. If you uh, would like to, we really encourage you gals to get involved in that. Um, you can go to the information table on your way out here and get some more information, or as with everything else, you can go to our website, heritagefellowship.net, and I think you should have gotten also a uh, information sheet when you came in that would have some stuff as well. Um, the other thing is this, um, membership update. As you guys know, we just started kind of a new uh, program here at Heritage for membership here in the church. And um, our, uh, just wanted to give you guys kind of an update on what's going on. Uh, we kind of hit that uh, deadline, if you will, with regards to the, uh, uh, um, the service that would take the place of the basics class. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But um, so far, so just to give you an idea, we average in terms of adults, like um, here in the sanctuary on Sunday, we average right about 500 people every Sunday in this room. Doesn't count volunteers, kids, any of that. Um, we were guessing after talking with other churches that had, had also introduced membership programs and stuff, we were guessing that we would have about a 30% involvement on that. That's pretty normal. Um, Matt Chandler, who is the uh, president of Acts 29, which we're a part of, um, his church in Texas has about 14,000 people, I think. They have like 6,000 members. And that number is actually high in terms of percentage-wise and all that. So so that's what we expected. We expected about, uh, and actually hoped for, um, 200 people that would want to join in a covenant membership program with us. Um, We are actually over 60-something percent of the people in the church who have have joined with us. Amen. Um, so it's, it's almost 70% of the people that in our normal Sunday attendance that, that have uh, agreed and decided, yeah, we want to be a part of this and we want to covenant with you. So we say that so that if you felt like, man, I don't want to be any part of this, that's just going to be the few, the weirdos or anything like that. That's not true. I'm not saying that, that you're the weirdo now. I'm not saying that either. <laughs> just, I'm just really excited. And so now that that's come in, we're going to start processing those. You're going to start getting some uh, word back from us now about that. So uh, just really excited. If you didn't uh, do that, if you haven't turned your paperwork in, you're worried you missed the deadline. We do believe in grace, so fill it out. You never know what happens. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Don't tell Aaron Beamish I said that, even though he's in here right now and hears everything that I'm saying. Just turn turn it in. Um, And then, uh, uh, was there one more? Optional. Men's and women's Bible study. Oh, the announcement's optional, right? Not the Bible studies. Um, (laughs) 
Men and women's Bible studies, reminder, uh, men, 6.30 a.m. over at the Hub every Thursday morning. Make sure you jump in there with us, 6.30 a.m. every Thursday morning with me over at the Hub. And ladies, you are Thursday nights, 6.30 p.m. at the Hub as well. So uh, make sure you jump in on those. But uh, that's enough for now. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, we've got a lot to cover so we're just, I'll just tell you straight out the gate, we're not going to get very far. Um, we're going to read verses 10 through 20, um, and then I'm going to have the longest intro to a teaching that I've ever done at Heritage, but don't freak out, then when we go back into these specific texts, we're only going to cover like three or four verses. So we'll do the rest next week, which means everyone has to come back next week, um, strategic. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. It says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. God, we bow before you right now, your word open before us, praying that you would speak to us, Lord. Maybe more appropriately, Lord, praying that we would hear what you're speaking to us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the gift of your church. I thank you for the gift of partnering together, of of coming together, Lord, as a, a congregation, the collective body of Christ, to be able to hear your word. Who are we that you, the creator of heaven and earth, would speak to us? We're so grateful, Lord. And so now, Lord, even as we bow before you, Lord, I pray that that would be the position of our hearts, mind, and will, that we would be bowed before you, that your word would rule and reign over us, that we would again be reminded, Lord, that you are our king, but also that you are our good, good father. And I pray, God, that as we open your word and study these things, you would speak to the hearts of everyone here. Our desire, Lord, is that we would have an interaction with you and we would leave changed because of it. So Lord, will you prepare our hearts for this? And God, for me personally, Lord, it is a humbling thing to be your mouthpiece, Lord. And so I pray for your grace, that Lord, the things that are shared would be true, that your heart would be reflected, your will and your gospel proclaimed, 
and that everything that is done would be empowered and moved by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and the church says, amen, amen. So um, I hate the prosperity gospel. If you've been here very long, you know that because any chance that I get when we're going through the word to throw a jab or a punch or a bullet or a nuclear bomb at the prosperity gospel that I get, I take it. And, and I think we should. I, I, a pastor should do that. There was one time a long time ago where someone who is sort of a traveling pastor in the prosperity gospel movement was actually coming to Medford to do a um, sort of a tent revival or something like that and and at the time I was on Facebook before God freed me from such horrors and um and I saw these people that I knew God worshiping God fearing people just talking about man we're gonna go to this thing we're gonna go see this thing and and I was just like you guys you've got to know who this is you got to know this guy's history you got to know this guy's theology this is dangerous and so I spoke out about it and uh one thing I learned I was pretty early on in in heritage uh and pretty early being a preaching teaching pastor here and so I learned quickly that that sometimes God tells you to say things that doesn't mean that the response you're going to get from the people that you're saying it to is always cool. And so I had, I got lit up by a couple of people in particular. And, and the thing that they said in particular was, you are dividing the body of Christ. That's not what a pastor is to do. To which I responded as gracefully as I could um, in my uh, even younger exuberance at the time. But, but, but that is exactly what a pastor is supposed to do when he sees heresy coming is to point it out. One of the absolute duties of a pastor is to protect the flock from dangerous heresies that come that way. And so when someone comes in claiming to be a sheep wearing wolf clothing on top of them, you're supposed to say something. And you go, well, that's not very biblical. It's absolutely biblical. Man, there are names in the Bible. You ever know that? Like there's people Paul called out by name. Like, hey, he talked about me in the Bible. What did he say? Oh, let me see, let me see. Ooh. Hopefully that's another dude. I don't know. I mean, right? There's, he names names in the Bible. It is a per Now, we don't now, we are not, I believe, to become those people that now we open up websites and that's all we do is run around and point fingers at everybody else and tear down every ministry that comes our way. But when we are here, like this is our church, this is our family, we have coveted together and when we see danger coming, we owe it to the people in our family to warn them about the danger that's coming. Right? Am I alone in this? Like, these people right here agree with me. Everybody else, you're, all those guys are wrong. You're good. You're good, right? This is, this is the reality. Now, we're, we're not trying to become one of those ministries that's like a watchdog over everything. But when a heresy, when something comes in that's dangerous, that's sick, we need to deal with that. And shepherds do that. The, the pastor of the church is called a shepherd. And you go through the, all the stories and analogies and pictures of shepherds in the scriptures. You, from David, who's killing wolves and lions with his bare hands, to the rod, his rod and his staff. Like, those are things that are used to protect, discipline, guide. I mean, the, all of this is part of what it means when we're here gathered together, the body of Christ. And so I hate the prosperity gospel. And, and the reason that I ended up, that we end up uh, kind of hitting it pretty often is because it's shocking how prevalent it still is here in our particular culture. 
Uh, most of the absolute biggest churches uh, in America are, are attached to, or I shouldn't say most, that's, that's probably too broad of a brush, but many of the biggest churches and most influential churches in America are associated with the prosperity gospel. I mean, this is going to step on toes. I don't care. We'll talk later. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Daughter, Dollar, Robert Tilton, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, Stephen Furtick, Benny Hinn, Paula White, all of those people. That's, that's what they are part of. Now, does that mean that I think that every person that teaches anything with regard to the prosperity gospel is a absolute raving satanic heretic? No, there are people that are deceived. There are people that don't understand the gospel, but I'll tell you this right now. The prosperity gospel is not the gospel. And you go, what, what are you talking about with the prosperity gospel? What, what is that? What the prosperity gospel is, it is a promise to those who follow Christ. It says, listen, God desires that you have wealth, success, prosperity in your life today. And the key by which he unlocks that into your life is faith. And that could be demonstrated all sorts of ways from just you being uh, uh, taught you need to believe in these promises and God's going to bring these things to be true in your life to, hey, you need to give more and as much money as you give, you're going to get that in return. So you have ministries that are like incredibly wealthy buying jet airplanes left and right and telling poor people in their congregation that this is how they unlock wealth in their own lives. And one of the reasons that I can't stand it so much is because I've seen it in Africa almost every time we go to Uganda. We see it there and it's always people who came from America. Like they came from America, went to Africa, filled stadiums and told people, if you give, then you're going to be blessed. And so you have these African people who have nothing compared to us. People who we should be going there with our resources to serve and bless. And you have them giving of what little bit they have to make ministries more and more wealthy. And that money then flies right back out of Africa and comes back here. And then those people are left to deal with the ramifications of that. I've seen it. I've seen churches in Uganda that are prosperity gospel churches that were planted and based on the prosperity gospel ministries that exist here in America where the pastors there are told, you have to drive a nice car, which having a car at all in Africa is a miracle, right? But they're saying you have to drive a nice car and live in a nice house and you need to always make sure that your car and house is nicer than anyone else in your congregation because you set the standard for your people. And so as a result, we've met people over there. I remember this one gal last time we were there who just struggles. She just struggles. You know why? Because life in Africa is hard. Africa is poor. And, and so she's just struggling. And yet her church brought her up on stage and pointed to her in front of the whole congregation and said, she is in sin because her ongoing struggle with poverty is proof that her faith is not strong enough. Like we've seen this. Okay, and this is a, a lot, this comes from America and it happens here all the time. And so we've got ministries, these huge ministries that are built to promise success and life and well-being and all these sorts of things. And, and, and I know there's people that are like, man, I got saved because of so-and-so on TV and I, I praise God for that. And now praise God, he's bringing you to something different now. Praise God for that. But, but here's the honest truth. Here's why this is so bad and why we should point people to a different place. There's a couple. Number one, the prosperity gospel, it glorifies man, not God. 
It absolutely glorifies man, not God. Because what you're doing, you're making the focus wealth. You're making the focus comfort. And and so when someone's driving around in a BMW, they don't see God. They see the BMW. And they go, man, I'll take some of that. There's a, there's a great video by John Piper on this, if you ever want to YouTube. It's, I think he's actually titled it, Why I Hate the Prosperity Gospel. Just wait till service is over or use your earpiece. But, but, um, but it's true. It, it glorifies man instead of glorifying God. And if you watch it, just test me. Go watch on TV. It's basically all of TBN. Go watch on TV and you'll see the sermons are never about the preeminency of Christ. They're always about how you, man, there's success waiting for you. There's blessing waiting for you. There's prosperity waiting for you. There's victory waiting for you. It's you, 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 you. It's glorifying man, not God. And, but, but more than that, it sets up Christians for failure. It sets up Christians for failure. Because as successful as some of those ministries are, You don't have to walk with Jesus all that long to understand that that kind of promised life isn't always exactly true. In fact, rarely, rarely. I mean, beyond the fact, how would you explain the difference in life between an African and an American or an African and a European? What happens is this. You tell people, man, your faith needs to be strong. God has victory set up for you. If you tell, don't tell, what's the the stuff? Don't tell your mountain how big, how's it go? I can't even remember. I'm glad I don't even remember. But something about telling God how big your mountain is. Instead, tell your mountain how big your God is. And victory is going to be great. And the boundaries are going to fall down. And you're going to do all this stuff. And then you tell someone that they need to live in this faith. They need to walk in this faith. And they're like, yes. And then cancer comes. Or unemployment comes. Or a death in the family comes. Or persecution comes. Like, I... One way you can always test theology to find out if it's true is take it out of the culture that you're in and try to put it in the context of different cultures historically. So for example, take the average prosperity gospel preaching of a Benny Hinn or a Creflo Dollar that says there's success and comfort and all these things waiting for you. Take it out of the American culture and put it in Iraq or Iran where ISIS is beheading people or put it back in the early church days even better. Like take your biblical interpretation along those lines, put it in the early church when they are being persecuted, burned at the stake, all these things going and then say, would that have worked? Could I have rolled in there while Polycarp was tied to the stake and they're about to light it on fire and say, dude, your faith, bro, that's your issue. Your faith needs to be stronger. Don't tell God how hot the fire is. Tell the fire how big your God is and just, right? You just can't do that. And so this is what happens. People looking for answers, usually because they're struggling with things in life, things that God will use to bring them to him, go, there's the answer to my problem. And so when the problem isn't solved, they'll move on to the next thing. You end up with people having crises of faith. You end up with people who just look at Christianity as one of many therapy options and maybe this one worked for me and maybe this one works for you and I tried Christianity it just didn't really work out for me because I thought for sure life was going to get better when I got saved and it just didn't well let's take Jesus's words for it in Luke chapter 14 listen to what Jesus says I think we have words for this whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple for which of you Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, 
When he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, what's he talking about? Christ is telling people as the crowds grow, as his following is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And why are they following him? Why are the crowds coming to Christ? Because he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons and he's pulling food out of nowhere. And he's doing all these great works. And so the crowd is growing and growing. And then you read through the gospels and you'll see this at a certain point. He starts teaching hard things on purpose. At one point he even turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? So here he says to the crowd, hey, If you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost. In other words, you need to understand what it really looks like to become a follower of Christ. And believe me, in that context, it wouldn't take a whole lot for them to understand that because walking away from, for example, Judaism meant you walked away from your whole family at that time. And he's telling them, look, you need to understand, you need to count the cost of this, that you're going to be bearing a cross. That's a murder, or excuse me, a a death penalty instrument. This isn't going to be all floating around on clouds, man. This is going to be hard. It's going to be dying to yourself. You need to think about this before you come with, or you're just going to make a fool of yourself when you inevitably walk away. And then, then he goes even further, because his next analogy, he talks about war. Look what he says in the very next verse. We have a slide for it, right? There we go. Luke 14, 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Now that's a weird analogy to go to next. The first one, hey, you're going to build something. We can get on board with that. We're going, to get on, we're, going to get, we're going to follow Christ and we're building something, building the kingdom of God, building a better life, building a whatever it is that, that someone might come to. Okay, we'll figure that out. And, but, but then he's like, now, now let me, let's talk about war. Have you thought about war? I mean, does anyone just go to war without even knowing how big the army is on the other side? Do you not count the cost of that? Do you not wonder what will the losses be on this side before I go to battle with that side? Do you even go down the road with that? That's really strange. Why would Christ bring up war? Well, here it is. I'll I'll skip really quickly to the end of the sermon and then I'll come back. So the end is this. We are at war. The Christian life has never been intended to be this life that's focused on comfort because I've never met a soldier that expected Marriott beds when he got to the battlefield. We're at war. Let me give you an example from history. Um, th- there's an article that was actually in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Young people, before Google, we had these books. And we used to have to go to these books, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they would kind of break down information for us. You go to Wikipedia, kind of the same thing, just harder to read. So um, Encyclopedia Britannica was talking about World War I. And it was talking about when they were bringing the European soldiers from England over the English Channel into France to go face Germany in World War I. And this is what they said. This is a quote. If a group here and there came, if from a group here and there, there came a song or a noisy demonstration, it was from the young soldiers going out to the front for the first time. The others remained impassive, silent. Experience had taught them that mere knowledge of their duties and a fleeting ardor or enthusiasm would not suffice to bear the long and bitter ordeal of battle. They required a spirit proved in the crucible of discipline. Let me explain that. 
They're saying that when these ships, these troop carriers, cross the English Channel to bring people over to the, the shores of Paris, or the shores of France, I should say, to go into battle, there were two groups of people on those boats. And you could tell by the noise made on the boat. If people were talking and there was noise, uh, maybe patriotic songs and people like, yeah, we're going to go get them. We're going to trash talking, you might say. Have you ever noticed before big boxing matches how the loser talks some trash, but at the end he's in these kind of quiet, right? Well, well, this is kind of what was going on here. They said if there was noise, if there was trumpeting, if there was these songs, it always came from young people as they were crossing the shore, or I should say inexperienced soldiers as they were crossing the shore who had no idea what they were about to see. But people that had been in the battle that were in that, those troop carriers, they understood the reality of what was going to happen when they got there. They understood what it felt like to watch your best friend die in your arms. They understood what it felt like to sleep in a foxhole at night, wondering if the bombs were going to come again. They understood fear. They understood loneliness. They understood missing home. And so there was no rejoicing as they went. There was a serious, somber understanding of what it was they were about to get into. So let's talk about the reality of the Christian life then. On Easter Sunday, we baptized 16 people. Praise God, right? That's great news. But if we were to sit down with those 16 people or the people we baptized last Easter or the people that we baptized the Easter before and we were to have honest conversation about what life's been like after that, what's the more common response we would get from them? Would we hear stories of unbridled victory, of prosperity falling into their laps, of constant joy with no rainy days. What, what we tend to find more often than not is that the, the more common story is that, hey, I, life actually feels like it might have gotten a little bit harder. So many people come to Christ thinking that that's going to be the answer to the problems in their life. And, and it is on one sense, but in this particular lifestyle, to think that, that we're going to go and start following Jesus and that's going to make everything roses, it disappoints a whole lot of people when they find out that my life actually got a lot more complicated, a lot harder once I got saved, more than it did before. And I don't understand, Jeff. Man, I was promised prosperity. I was promised that, man, this is, all I had to do is have faith and I was going to unlock blessings, but I feel like I have unlocked the gates of hell to come against me. And it's only because you have. Now, before you get too upset, does that mean there's no joy in the Christian life? Absolutely not. There is great joy in the Christian life, but the joy in the Christian life is not rooted in the circumstances we're around. It's rooted in the Savior that has us in spite of the circumstances that are going all around us. Amen? That's what that means. And there's infinite joy promised eventually, but, but let's just look at Christ. I mean, Christ did everything right. Christ was the most faithful and most faith-filled man ever. How did his life go? He was murdered, beaten, persecuted, died. Yet, for the joy set before him, he endured those things. So, so for us, what does, that, what does that mean? Well, absolutely there's blessing. The problem is, is we tend to equate the blessing of Christian life with wealth, comfort, and all of these things. That's, that's what happens. That's the error in prosperity gospels. They equate blessing with westernized belief with regards to wealth and prosperity and all these things. So, for example, let's take with us, if you will, the, the Beatitudes, Famous teaching of Jesus Christ at the Sermon on the Mount where he says over and over, blessed, 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 happy are you, with joy are you if you. 
But let's look at the places that he says you're going to find blessedness in. Look what he says in Matthew 5, verse 2. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means spiritually bankrupt. It means broken. It means understanding how much you need God because there's nothing in you. You're you're empty. He says there's blessedness in that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And then look at this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In in 1 Peter, Peter's writing to the church that's about to go through all sorts of difficulty in life. And he tells them, hey, when this stuff comes down, don't react with with like surprise as if some strange thing were happening to you. The scriptures say Christ was persecuted, Christ went through difficulty, and then what does it say about the servant and the master? It says the servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, in this life you will have what? Trouble, difficulty. The scriptures are full of warnings to the believer, hey, this ain't no luxury ride. You, you, didn't, you didn't sign up for a first class ticket through life and we just get to kick back and relax. When you became a Christian, you went to war. You have, on the, on the day that you got into that baptismal, on the day that you came forward to that altar call, on the day that you became a Christian, you need to understand something. You defected. You defected from an opposing army. You declared your allegiance to its opposing army, but you're still in enemy territory. Now, how does that usually go? Not easy. You become a kingdom outpost, a representation of Jesus Christ in a world that hates Jesus Christ. And he says it himself in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Romans says we were once an enemy of God. But that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been reconciled to him. But that means we've changed teams. We've switched sides. I I tell you, you guys know this. And please be be easy on me because I'm still mourning Monday night. But, but I'm a diehard North Carolina Tar Heel fan. And when I went to North Carolina, um, or excuse me, when I went to school, I went to North Carolina State, actually, because they had engineering. North Carolina didn't. And, and when I got there, um, the first thing we did was, like, several of my friends were on the football team there. And so we're hanging out around the athletes all the time. And, and so when basketball season came, the first year the basketball season came, it was in 1991, um, I remember going to the NC State game with my NC State gear on, all this kind of stuff. And Carolina of comes running out through the tunnel and the moment I saw him I was like oh I can't hate you guys those are my boys 
And so from then on, I became the guy you'd see on TV. In the sea of red student section, I was the blue shirt right in the middle. You could also find me by the popcorn in my hair, um, the drinks poured down the back, whatever the case may be. I'm telling you right now, going into that stadium in a blue shirt in the sea of red did not mean I was going to kick back and enjoy everything in total comfort. I had declared, if you will, war. I was in enemy territory, and as a result, I became the object of scorn of thousands of college kids all around me. But this is the reality of what it is when we become Christians. You were once enemies of God. You have declared your allegiance to God now. God has saved you. He's pulled you out of the ranks of the enemy. And now who's our enemy? Satan. (sighs) Jeff, come on now. Time out. Satan, we don't really still believe in that, right? We're enlightened. We've grown. Red dude, pitchfork, sits on your shoulder. That guy, Satan, absolutely he exists. Absolutely he exists. He is 100% real. He looks nothing, I would imagine, like a red dude in a pitchfork, actually. There's some things we need to understand about that. What we're going to be doing today is kind of, this is still intro. We're going to be looking at the reality of this. And then we're going to go into the passage verse by verse to talk about what God has given us to deal with the opposition. But, but please understand, Satan is real. He's not a cartoon. He's also not what you see on Hollywood either. Um, the scriptures actually tell us in Isaiah and Ezekiel that Satan is a created being. Which means, by the way, if God created him, this idea that there's equality, one on one shoulder, one on the other. I even saw as I was researching for this sermon, I saw someone had done this painting and it showed Jesus and Satan arm wrestling. And I understand their heart in that, this good versus evil thing. That's just such a terrible picture. Uh, If they wanted to do it, they should show like a five-year-old wrestling like Arnold Schwarzenegger or something like that. I don't know anyone big anymore. I know that's old school. Who's big now? Boxer, wrestler, somebody? Name your, who? There you go, The Rock. He's arm wrestling with The Rock. That's a bad, that's a, actually that's a great analogy because upon this rock, very good. Um, I need to talk to you about, talk to her about sermon analogies in the future period. We'll talk. Great analogy. Because that, even that is unfair to show how, how so far below the power of God Satan is. You got to know that. Satan compared to God is a weakling. More powerful than us, dangerous to us, yes. Before God, nothing. Nothing. An ant, less than an ant. He's the tick on the back of an ant, or on the back of a, he's just little. (laughs) All right? That's just the reality of it. That's, that's who he is. But, but here's, the, here's what the scriptures teach us, though, that Satan is a created being and that God had created him and that he was one of the most beautiful of all of God's creations, one of the most beautiful of the angels. He was created to reflect God's glory, to do good works. He's, he wasn't created as this grotesque monster. He was a beautiful creation, the kind of creation that if we saw and had no understanding of God or anything else, you just saw him, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship. A beautiful creation of God. However, he decided being beautiful wasn't enough. He wanted to be God. And so he 
convinces these angels, these other, we refer to them now as demons, fallen angels, to rebel against God. They're evicted from, from heaven in that way. They're cast out, the scriptures say, though Satan does. Man, there's so much we could go into off this. You have no idea how many rabbit trails I'm fighting right now. You have no idea. But, um, but, but he's been kicked out of that, though the Bible does show that he still has access to come and accuse us before God. He's been removed from those heavenly ranks now. And, and now he exists to tempt us, to destroy us. He's at war with us. And interestingly enough, the first time he pops up on the scenes in the Bible in Genesis 3, what's the first temptation he says to Adam and Eve? The same thing he went through. You can be like God, you know. It's the same thing that he was after. We don't have to be subservient. Why do we have to rely on him for everything? We can do this on our own. You can be like God. I want to be like God. This is the reality of who Satan is. So the Bible actually even describes that he masquerades as an angel of light. You know what that means, church? That means sometimes things look really good, but we have to understand there's danger behind them. That's why I've said to you guys before, just because a book's an evangel doesn't mean you should read it. And just because someone is a false teacher, speaks a little bit of truth, doesn't mean that everything they're feeding you should be eaten off that plate. Sometimes Satan masquerades, or he does masquerade as an angel of light. It means he doesn't look like a monster. It means he looks attractive. It means it's something to be desired. Now today we laugh off notions like that, especially outside of the church. We laugh that off. But there's a movie I'm not going to tell you the name of because I'm pretty sure I wasn't supposed to watch it back when I was in college. But there was a famous line from a famous movie. If you know it, don't tell anybody. But he said this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And, and that's kind of where we live now. I mean, as, as Christians, we're told that you, you, so you seriously believe in God and demons and Satan and angels and all these sorts of things. Come on now. Haven't we evolved? I mean, the known world is all that there is, correct? Absolutely not. They are real and they are active. Put simply, here, this is Tim Keller's words. Put simply, demons oppose the kingdom of God. They prowl about the earth looking to destroy appear as angels of light in order to corrupt and destroy through lies, accusation, deception, false teaching, suffering, and other various tools at their disposal. They seek to exalt a dominion of darkness and death and attempt to rob God of the glory that is rightly his. They are real, they are at war, they are at war with us, they are at war with God, and we are now in enemy territory. The church is a kingdom outpost in enemy territory with the world attacking the church in reality from all different directions. This is real church. Now, C.S. Lewis talked about this. The, the idea, the understanding demons and Satan, like all this kind of stuff. Sometimes you're like, I don't think we should be even talking about this in church. Like, that's creepy. But, but C.S. Lewis said this. He said, people tend to make two different errors when it comes to Satan and demons and that whole kind of world. Um, the first error is total disregard and dismissal. We'll just act like they don't even exist. That's, that's an error. If there's a danger there, you need to know what the danger is. If you have a rattlesnake in your house, pretending it's not there doesn't make the rattlesnake go away or make it any less dangerous. Amen? But the other one is fascination and obsession. Because there's certain parts of this that if we are really honest, we would say that's sort of, I don't know, there's something interesting about that. There's something like, wow, really? And, and you can be drawn into this. You can want to study more of this. And this is an area where there's a certain point when you know enough, just stick with the Lord. Amen? But here's something we can know for sure going into this. That when we are considering the reality of Satan, 
of demonic activity, of the war that we're in as the church. One thing we know for sure is that we do need to be aware of his tricks and methods. We do need to understand some of these things, but we need not fear or worry because Satan, though he is alive and active, he's defeated by Jesus Christ who defeated our sin on the cross, rose from the dead, showed his power over death, and his days are absolutely numbered because the day is coming will he be thrown into a lake of fire. Satan knows it, and because of the scriptures, we know know it and so we don't need to be afraid of him he has lost his power if you will but you go wait wait Jeff if he's defeated then why are we worried about why do we talk about it if he's defeated he's gone right well the battle of Stalingrad was a battle let's go back to war again we'll talk about World War II In World War II, the Battle of Stalingrad is generally believed by historians to be the absolute turning point in World War II. In fact, many would say that at that moment, when the Battle of Stalingrad ended, Hitler was done. His defeat was absolutely assured and victory for Hitler was impossible from that moment on. And it eventually did lead to um, the, uh, the surrender of the, uh, the Nazi German army in May of 1945, right? Here's the problem. Do you know when the Battle of Stalingrad was? That was in February 1943. So for two years after this, they are defeated. It is a no-brainer. We just do what we got to do, and he is toast. There were two years of what ended up becoming the bloodiest two years of the entire war. And and that's kind of what's going on now. Satan is defeated. His day is done. But he has taken as many people down with him. He is fighting, kicking, screaming. In many cases, in in many people's lives, he is winning. He is defeating people. He is destroying people. He is pulling them down. And he will keep pulling as many people down as he can until that day when Christ appears and throws him into the pit of fire. I can't wait for that day. Amen, church? Well, why doesn't God just do it now? Boy, that is a whole other sermon. And we're not going there today. But there's a reason, just trust God. So Jeff, Satan's real, the attacks are real, we need to be careful and be aware of them, so what, what do they look like? Well, it's not likely that a attack would look like the classic horror movie demonstrations that we've seen in movies like The Exorcist and stuff, though not impossible, I, I wouldn't argue that, but not likely that when Satan attacks you, your head starts spinning and green vomit goes everywhere and all that kind of stuff, that's not likely. Not likely. What's, what, what's more likely is not possession, but oppression. When we talk about possession, you're talking about no control. People in movies like that who would say, like, Satan possessed them. They've, they've lost control. They've lost the ability to do anything. I don't believe any Christian who has the Spirit of God in them is ever in danger of being possessed by God or possessed by Satan. That that you're not going to be in a place where you've lost control. But Christians absolutely, instead of being possessed, can absolutely be oppressed. And this is what we're talking about. Attacked, influenced. And so what does it kind of look like? There's various ways. Just for example, uh, one of the ways that Satan comes after us and makes war with us is just through the temptation to sin. Right? So David, for example, follower of God, man after God's own heart, king of Israel at the time. The scriptures say in 1 Chronicles 21.1, so, state, so Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So, so David, king, godly man, 
was tempted by Satan to do something that we, we knew from earlier he wasn't supposed to do. And it was an attack because it wasn't just about tripping up and fooling David, but it was meant to affect all of the nation of Israel, which it absolutely ended up doing. And so one of the ways that, that Satan makes war with the church is he tempts you to sin. Now, you got to understand, the reality of what he's trying to do is way more than just like, ah, I got you. And the scriptures say he's what? He's trying to kill and destroy. And uh, there, there's story after story after story that we could look at where addictions led to suicide, where anger led to abuse or murder, where Satan has got his claws in and he's corrupted and manipulated and people have bought in. And instead of repenting and going back to God, they've just further solidified themselves in sin and it has led down darker and darker and darker and darker paths, Right? There's millions of examples of that. So one of the ways he attacks is that just through temptation to sin. One of them is through temptation to doubt. I mean, when, when Satan comes to Jesus, Jesus, right before, as his ministry is about to start, he's tempted in the wilderness and Satan shows up. And what are the things he says to him? If you really are the son of God, if you really are the son of God, what does he come to Adam and Eve and do? Did God really say that to you? Isn't, he told you not to eat of that tree? Well, that's silly. There are so many, uh, ask, ask people who have gone through baptism experience how long it took till we got to points going, am I really saved? Did that really work? And this is one of the, the dangers of the prosperity gospel part of it because you begin to equate God's, your relationship with God that if I'm God's son, then I'm gonna get these blessings in my life. But then when difficulty comes after, you start feeling like, was that even real at the beginning? Because I'm not realizing these promises that I've heard. And it leaves so many people in major crises of faith in the back end of that. It's an incredibly dangerous theology. It really is. And so Satan does this. He comes to many of us. Now, he'll come into, we're, we're in the context of the book of Ephesians. And so what will he do to you? Are you really God's child? Does he really like you? Because think about what you did yesterday. Who could like that? That pastor guy that says God delights in you, that he loves you, that he approves of you. He's only saying that because he doesn't know what you did Friday night. If Jeff knew what you did Friday night, he would say, God loves you, delights in you, except for Robert. That's not true. But Satan wants to come in and get you to doubt God's goodness, doubt God's grace, doubt your identity in him, doubt your salvation experience, doubt all of these things because he's trying to wrestle with and wreck your understanding of who he is and who you are in him. Once he gets those things unsteady, then he can have a field day with all sorts of issues. So he attacks doubt and another one is just plain old discouragement discouragement is a dangerous thing as a Christian. There's a reason the scriptures are always talking about being content, being joyful in Christ, all of these things, because discouragement can wreck all sorts of things. It can do everything from leading to like clinical depression, suicide, those sorts of things, to causing people to walk away from their faith because they're discouraged with a lot in life that they have. And it can come through all sorts of things. I mean, we see in the book of Job, for example, Satan comes to God and says, these people that you created, they're a joke, God. I mean, seriously, do you see them? Like you created them to worship you and none of them do it. They're all a mess. And God says, well, have you considered Job? And Satan goes, Job, it's not a good example because Job is in all this prosperity. Job's in all this comfort. Everything goes great for Job. It's because you leave him alone. If you were to remove that hedge of protection a little bit and let me mess with him, I'll show you. And God said, all right, you're on. 
And so what happens? Job loses everything. Everything from physical illness on his own, losing his family, property, all of these things. He loses all that. Why? It's not just because Satan's like, ah, he hurts. That's good enough for me. He's trying to turn him. He's trying to make Job turn from God and refute him. And there's people in Job's lives that are saying that his own wife says what? Curse God and die. So he's trying to get Job to be so discouraged by everything that's going on in his life that he'll turn and walk away from God. And he does this all the time. And with many people, it works. I tried God. You know what? Life got harder, so forget it. I I was having a hard enough time already. I'm not going to deal with that. People do that sort of thing all the time. But regardless of how he attacks, the symptoms are always sort of the same. They're very much in line with temptations of the flesh. There's issues with apathy, anger, lust, bitterness, depression, despair. All of these things, common manifestations of demonic influence that are parts of like these fleshly desires that are trying to get us to... One, destroy us. Two, turn us away from God. Three, destroy our witness with others. Make no mistake about it. It's not a game. It's war. And, and for us, it's like, oh, we're, we go to church, and then we go to work. But with Satan, it's sharpen the knives, load the guns. I'm after Jeff. War is what we're a part of. And look, Paul knows this better than anybody. Nobody's been through the kind of struggles Paul has other than Christ. Paul's seen this stuff front row. Paul has seen that choosing to follow Christ does not necessarily lead to easy times. Paul has seen how family and friends leave. Paul has seen how poverty can come on. Paul has seen how discouragement is possible in the midst of physical pain, even to the point of wanting to die himself and wrestling with depression and discouragement himself. Paul's seen all that stuff. And so now, hey, I'm winding down my intro. Are you guys excited? And so now here's Paul. And he's writing a letter to this church in Ephesus in a place that is absolutely enveloped with all sorts of literal demonic pagan worship, materialistic efforts, all this mess going all around him. And he writes to the church and he says, first of all, you are gods. And he paints this glorious picture of the gospel, their identity in Christ. He assures them of the fact that they are gods, that he chose them, that he adopted them, that he delights in them, and he lays out this incredible picture in the first three chapters of Ephesians of who they are in Jesus and who their identity is. And then he goes into, and this is the last part, we're almost done here, like two weeks left. Then he goes into, because of our identity, this is how life looks. And life looks different because of our identity in Christ than it does otherwise. We relate to God differently, Instead of cowering in fear or even wondering if he even exists, he's our father. We relate to each other in the church differently. We serve one another. We put one another's interests over our own. We minister to one another out of the gifts that God's given us. We relate to our family differently. We're not lording over them. We talked about some of the cultural examples of of how families were so dogmatically ordered. But instead, we're laying our lives down for one another in the family, both husband to wife, wife to husband, children to parents, parents to children, how we serve and love one another. We talked, Jeremy talked about it last week, how our relationship with our employers is different because of this. And as an employer, how we treat our employees differently in those things. And now he's saying, it's, it's not just you and, about you and God. 
It's not just about you and family. It's not just about you and church. It's not just about you and work, but you need to understand something. You will now relate to the world differently because of your identity in Christ. And the reason it's gonna look different is because instead of being a compliant piece of Satan's puzzle to try to spin people off into hell, you are now at war. And so life starts to look different now. You need to understand the reality that you're in a place, and Paul's writing to a people in an area that reeks of demonic worship. It reeks of satanic influence. And he's reminding them, when you take this step, when you start living as a Christian, when you declare the glories of God, when you're putting others' needs first, when you're doing this church thing like this together, you're going to stand out, and it's not always going to go well for you because you're at war. And so as the church becomes the body of Christ in the presence of all of this demonic influence around the world, attacks are going to come. And so he's warning the church that this is real. If you do this, opposition's coming. But thanks be to God, God is not the God who who says, hey, it's gonna be war and war is hell. Good luck with that, I'll see you on the other side. He doesn't do that. He's our father, he's our physician, he's our counselor, he's our general, and he's our helper. Amen? And so with that being said, look at verse 10. Don't worry, we're not going far. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now before we go any further on that, know something. There's something in the original, the Greek text, that's not always portrayed well in the English transitions or translations. But, but you can interpret that wrongly. Be strong in the Lord, Jeff. All right, I gotta be strong in the Lord. I got this. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got this. I'm ready. Be strong, be strong, be strong. But that's actually not what it says. It's actually passive. It actually literally means be made strong in the Lord. The Christian life is not about self-effort and self-determination. It's about the power of God and the power of Christ lived through our lives. So he's not saying, Jeff, you better be strong. You better get your faith strong. You better get your memory verses strong. You better get all these stuff strong because when the attack comes, it's all on you. No, no, no. He's saying, be filled. Have the spirit of God in you. Have an understanding. Then be made strong by God because the one who fights is not us. Scripture's full of examples. Stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Amen? So he's saying, be made strong in the strength of our God. And how strong is our God? He's strong. Our God is so big, so mighty, there's nothing our God cannot do. There's a few of you went to Sunday school. Good. <sighs> anyway. So he's saying, be made strong, verse 11, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Two things. First of all, he says the whole armor. This is something that we'll break down a little bit more next week as we look at these individual pieces. But, but nobody signs up for war, and when they come to outfit you for the battlefield, you're like, flag jacket? No, I'm good. I'm just going to rock the helmet, man. Let's just do that. I got a tank top. I'll be good. It doesn't work like that, right? And, and so here's what you have to understand. Sometimes you can look at some of these things and go, oh, forget you in your prayer. I'm just a Bible guy. He said, no, no, no. Then you are weak. This is a whole armor, and trust me, the enemy will absolutely find the weak spot. And how do I know that? He says it in the very verse, that you may be able to stand against the schemes, plural, of the devil. It means two things. Number one, it means there's lots of them, and number two, it means that they're varied. 
And here's what I mean by that. We can think, if I was just in that position, I wouldn't struggle. I've talked to so many young men that think, if I got married, then I'll never struggle with lust. Because I'm married, I get to have sex, right? Married men, don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. But deep down, amen. It's not true. It's not true. We always think if this one area of our life gets fixed, we won't struggle anymore. But if you get to that other point, then he's got, he's got a plan for that. He's got a scheme for the wealthy. He's got a scheme for the poor. He's got a scheme for the comfortable. He's got a scheme for the uncomfortable. He will find you. He will find you. And so, so that, that's where you, you can go a little too far in trying to discover everything about all the schemes because in reality, he's gonna find a way. In the end, we have to just continue to be strong in the strength of the Lord. Amen? So it's the whole armor of God in verse 11. And it says in verse 12, for we wrestle not against f- flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. One of the most famous verses in all of the Bible about the reality of spiritual warfare. It's the Christian term for all this. That, that behind everything that you're wrestling with, it's not about the person, it's about something else. And so here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean when someone offends you and cuts you off in the grocery store that you should look at that person in line, put your hand on their forehand and say, demons be gone. Please don't do that. I'm begging you, please don't do that. It, it doesn't mean that we go cast demons out of everything that we see or we start saying, get behind me, Satan, every time there's any sort of opposition. What it does mean, though, is maybe those people who are offending you, you should have some sort of grace to understand, man, they're dealing with something much bigger than them. And we are wrestling with something much bigger than us. To understand the reality of, like, but behind spiritual oppression or behind uh, Christian persecution or behind whatever the things that are going on there, there are demonic entities and things at play that are infinitely bigger and infinitely more vast that we can possibly understand. So maybe the first step, rather than casting demons out of the first person in front of us or you know, flipping them the bird, maybe the best thing we could do is just calm ourselves for a moment and just pray for them and pray for ourselves in the meantime. You ever find yourself like somebody cuts you off in traffic and you get mad and then you remember you just did that to somebody like 10 minutes ago, right? There is something so much bigger at play. We'll talk more about these things moving forward. The truth of the matter is that our battles are bigger than we think and those who oppose us, it's not, our goal is not to get our opposition out of the way so that we're comfortable. Our goal is that our opposition comes to Jesus, I just got this incredible opportunity that just came out of the blue that I'm getting ready to go to uh, this week. I get to go to Anchorage and sit in a room with 20 people in a living room and and ha- be trained in apologetics by Ravi Zacharias. And I am so incredible. You guys know who he is. So I'm, I'm so excited about this, right? But here's, here's what I love about Ravi Zacharias. There are a lot of people that do apologetics, which means defending the faith. Um, there are a lot of people that do it in a way that is arrogant and prideful. And they're, it's like a debate club or something. And they go into these things just wanting to win. Ravi Zacharias's um, approach to Christians and how we should defend our faith with others is, is really summed up by this. He says, we don't answer questions, we answer people. Never forget that. And so the idea is this. We're not just trying to win some battle, we're trying to win a person. And so even with regards to spiritual warfare, we can get so caught up in the fact that Satan's behind all of it that we forget about the poor person that doesn't know Jesus that's standing right in front of us. We try to win people. Amen, church? 
And then verse 13 says this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. So here's what Paul does. He says over and over, hey Christians, stand. Attacks are coming, stand. Stand firm, stand. Don't be moved, stand. No matter what you do, stand. And then he doesn't just say, and if you do it, God's gonna reward you on the end. But instead he says, and to help you stand, here's what God has given you. And so God, as he often does, he's so gracious. He doesn't just command us to do something, but then he provides the means by which we do it as well, amen? Now, does it mean that Christians do nothing? No. He says, hey, stand, stand, put this stuff on, be ready, stand. But it is the victory and the power behind which our ability to stand is God's. So he doesn't just leave us powerless. So next week, we're going to talk more specifically about what some of these things mean. We're only going to talk today about the first one. And he says that we are to stand firm having fastened on the belt of truth. It's a weird thing. Usually belt's one of the last things you put on, right? But when it comes to this day and age, and when they're talking about war and the military, the fastening on of the belt was actually the thing that symbolized readiness and preparedness for action. It was this idea of, I got my belt on, whether your sword's attached to it. They had, usually had these leather things that would come down the sides, protect your sides during battle. It was a belt with these things that came down the side. And they're saying, hey, put this on, get ready, because there's war coming. But he calls it, not just the belt, not just the leather belt, not the, what's Batman's thing, utility belts, none of those kind of things. It's the belt of truth. Why? Because here's why. And this is awesome. The emphasis over and over and over is what? Stand, 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 stand. Stand on what? So stand on truth is what we're talking about. The first thing out of the gate is truth. Stand on truth. Why? Well, th- think about this. We don't stand just on truth in general, though there's lots of truths. There's one specific truth in the Bible that the, the scriptures tell us. This is where we make our stand. And people can fight with us in Christianity about all sorts of things. We can fight about prosperity gospel. We can fight about end times. When's Jesus going to come back? Is there a rapture? Isn't there? We can fight about Calvinism, Arminianism. We can fight about uh, six-day creation. We can fight about all sorts of things. But man, there's one thing for sure, among others, but one thing for sure we don't fight about. As Christians, we make our stand on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, God himself in the flesh. So where do you get that, Jeff? Well, I get this, guys, I gave you the slide in reverse, I'm noticing, but we get this first from Matthew chapter 16. Look what it says. Do you guys remember this exchange? Jesus comes to Peter. Hey, who does everybody say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Moses. Uh, Peter, enough of that. Who do you say that I am? And look what Peter says. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, see, rock, I will build my, not, that's not the rock, but I'm just 
forget it. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hey, I could build my church on all sorts of things, Peter. I could build my church on this. I could build my church on this. We could build it on the 10 commandments. We could build it on morality. We could build it on worship. We can build it on all sorts of things. But he says specifically, I'm building my church on this, the truth that Peter has just proclaimed that you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. That's where we take our stand. And then here's what's really interesting to me. We got any prophecy buffs in here? We got any people that like to read like Revelation and end time stuff? Check this out. In the book of Revelation, it tells us one day is coming when all this mop up war stuff's over. You guys know this, right? One day Christ returns. One day, it's no longer the turning point in the cleanup battles, but one day it's over and Satan's going to be thrown into the fiery pit and all this warfare is over. And at that point, boy, there is comfort and prosperity like this world has never seen before. And on that day, it begins when Jesus Christ returns. And in the book of Revelation is this amazing picture of how Christ comes in, into this battle, in to make war in to get rid of Satan finally and forever. And it says in Revelation verse 19, or excuse me, Revelation 19 verse 11, look at what it says. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and what? True. And in righteousness he judges and makes what? War. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arraigned in in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury, the wrath of of God Almighty. And then look, on his robe and on his what? On his thigh. If you're a soldier at that time coming to war, you put that belt on and these leather things come down the thigh. And what does it say? On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the breastplate of truth right there. We stand on the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That Satan, you can call him ruler of this present world all you want. He is nothing compared to the king. And our king has defeated him on the cross already. When he rose from the dead, that was the turning point for sure. He sealed the fate of Satan in that moment. And so he's telling the church, hey, first and foremost, when you're understanding the opposition that you're going to get in this world, when you're understanding the reality that now Satan in the world hates you, there's a lot of things you need to know. But the first thing you need to know is this, you stand, stand on what? We stand on the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of the most high God, that he is our Messiah. He is our conqueror. He is our deliverer. Amen. Totally should have got an amen on that. But, but let me ask you something. You say, well, why, why is that one so important? Ask yourself this. How do you scare Lazarus? Remember Lazarus? Dead in the tomb for four days. He stinketh, his sister said. And then Jesus comes and what does he do? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus walks out. He's now alive. Now, Lazarus walking around, he's going through days and Satan's like, I'm gonna attack that guy. I'm gonna send some spiritual opposition this way. How? 
how do you scare a guy who already died? How do you scare a guy who's experienced death and had a really significant interaction with the one who not only rules over death, but is going to get him out of it in the end? How do you scare that guy? There's a play written, actually, in the early 1900s. There's a play written called uh, Lazarus Laughs. And in it, Lazarus, after, the re- after Christ had resurrected, he's going through life and he's telling everybody, death is dead, people. There's no more death. Death is dead. There's n- we don't need to be afraid anymore. Death is dead. And, and over time, people start thinking he's crazy. Opposition's coming against him. And the more he trumpets this message of who Jesus Christ is, the harder life gets to the point that they end up eventually burning him at the stake. But, but as he's coming to that point, he stands before the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor tells me he needs to shut up with this message. And he's like, no way, man. Death is dead. I've been raised. I know. And he tells him, he said, Lazarus, if you don't shut up, we're going to kill you. And Lazarus goes, ha, 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 And Caesar goes, stop laughing. And he laughs harder and harder and harder. And they end up ordering him to the stake and killing him. Why? Death has lost its victory. Death, where is your sting? We take our stand on Christ because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive that you and I do not need fear death. That though the very gates of hell may come against us, we can stand on the fact that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Amen? But here's my question then. Can you? Like, can you stand on the fact that He's your Savior? Not that it happened. Not that a book was written about it. Not that people don't believe it. Not that you're in a church that believes it. But that you believe it. That Christ is your Savior. That on that day, you will be riding in behind Him on the white horses. Not experiencing the judgment of God that comes on that day in Revelation 19. As we close in this one last song, there's going to be some men available in the back. Elders and and their wives. And some, some of us will be down here. But listen to me. If you don't have Jesus, please hear me on this. You will not stand. Do you understand? You will not stand. It is on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand, as the hymn says. And so if you're not sure, you need to come talk to somebody. You need to come let us pray with you. You need to come let us talk to you about the reality of who Jesus is and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Sam's going to close this in song. I'm going to ask that you guys all stand. There's going to be prayer available in the back, prayer available down front. And for those of you that can, then here we are worshiping and rejoicing in the truth that Jesus Christ has delivered us from death. So God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that though there are many enemies against us, that you are so much greater and mightier. And God, we put again our faith in you. We declare our faith in you. We even stand, Lord, on the reality that you are our Savior. So God, may you receive our worship. And Lord, for those that are in this room that don't know you, whether they've been playing church for a really long time or whether it's never happened again, God, will you, I pray, bind the enemy who's at war with them now. The enemy who right now is attacking them, trying to tell them they don't need to do such a silly thing. God, I pray that you would bind the enemy from their lives, that they might come to an understanding of your reality and that they might give their lives to you. Let's sing together, church. In Jesus' name.